We're a pioneer church based in Loughborough in the UK. Our mission is to make disciples to establish heaven on earth. Hello everyone, I'm Tilly. Um, I'm going to start the story for you all. I've been joking in my house that I'm just going to speak about guinea pigs today. That's not the truth, but we are going to start on guinea pigs because where else better to start talk on wisdom? So, picture me, 10 years old. I get a sudden, deep desire for a guinea pig. I've never had one before, but I decide, you know what, I'm going to be the best guinea pig owner in the world. And this just feels right. This point in my life, I just really feel like where God has led me to now, a guinea pig is exactly what I need to um, carry on this journey. Um, So, as all good 10-year-olds do, go to my mum and dad, mum, dad, I really, really, really want a guinea pig. Please, could you buy me one? Mum and Dad, not so convinced. Um, They know me. They know me. No, Tilly, you can't have a guinea pig. But why not? Well, Tilly, you won't look after it. We've got two dogs. You don't do anything for them. Um, Why do you think that a guinea pig is really right for you at the moment? So I say, okay, mum and dad have said no, no worries. I distinctly remember calling a meeting with my next door neighbours, Anna and Izzy, if you're watching, hello. Um, Anna, Izzy and my brother Ruben, we sit on the stairs, the bottom two stairs, and we're talking. Do you know what? We really need a guinea pig. They're in on this. They see my desire and they want to help me. They're like, okay, Tilly, what you've got to do is you've got to show your parents that you can be a responsible guinea pig owner. Um, So we go through it all. Okay, I've researched the guinea pigs. I know everything about how to look after them, what food they need, the runs they need, the cage needs, how often they need clearing out. Um, so I've come up with all of this. Look, I am responsible. I am wise. I know how to do this. Go back to them. Still no. Okay, on to plan C. Um, I'm going to show them. I'm going to show them that I can do this. I say, mum and dad, look, I'll feed the dogs for a week. And that will show that I am ready to feed my guinea pig. I then say, look, I'll help you walk the dogs for two weeks. And that will show that I am ready to be a good guinea pig owner. And even I will pick up the poo. I'll pick the poo up. And that will show you that I am ready to clean out these guinea pigs. I've worn them down at this point. Do you know what? They take me to pets at home and they get me a guinea pig. And I am just so happy. Thank you. Yeah. I get, yeah, 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 yeah. I get my beloved guinea pig. My brother gets one also. I don't think he really deserved it, but I'll let him off because it meant I could have one. Um, Huggles, he was called. I did try to find a picture of him, but it doesn't exist, and that probably shows what I'm about to say. Um, So, a weekend, we're a weekend. The excitement for the guinea pig. It's worn off. I actually really don't like cleaning out guinea pigs. Um, remembering to feed them every day, not my thing. They're outside, I have to put my shoes on, I have to go out in the cold, can't be dealing with that. Um, So a week of looking after the guinea pigs went really well and then after that, I was not a good guinea pig owner. My mum and dad had to remind me to feed them, they had to clean them out. Well, I cleaned them out but they had to remind me to do that and it was just all in all not great for me or for the guinea pigs or for them. This is a silly example just to get your, get your attention. Um, but what it highlights is there is a difference between living out wisdom because we're wise and living out wisdom 
because we're trying to prove a point. Okay, what Tilly did then, my parents know. I wasn't in the place for a guinea pig. I couldn't do it. They knew that. I tried to prove it. I put on a show. Um, it didn't work. I was not in that place in my life. Um, and that is kind of what James is showing us today a bit more seriously. Um, so there is a difference between being wise and pretending to be wise. So I'm going to start at verse 13, if I could get that on the screen. Um, big shout out to Abby for getting these slides together this morning. That is my bad, and I just want to say thank you so much for doing that for me. Um, so James starts with a question um, in this passage that we're reading. He starts by saying, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, while this question was directed at the teachers at the time um, of James writing this, who profess to be wise and wise enough to be teaching others, it works for us today as well. This question grabs our attention and it immediately gets us thinking about wisdom. Many at the time of this writing, and probably most of us in the room now, want to be seen as wise. We want to appear as though we know what we're doing, what we stand for, and the right way of doing things. So this question grabs our attention. But just as we start to think about all the ways in which we are wise, James follows his question with, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. Now James cuts to the point of his message straight away. Many of us can claim to be wise, but real wisdom is shown through our everyday actions and our state of mind. Real wisdom, which comes from God, outworks itself in our good deeds and our good life. Real wisdom, which comes from God, is not only mind knowledge, but it's a heart stance. When we truly understand God's ways, it impacts our whole life, and the consequence of this is the way that we live. The way we live when we're living with God's wisdom is a life that brings fruit to those around us, and this requires us to act with selflessness. So those claiming to be wise just for show or for selfish gain, and those claiming to be wise without actually knowing God's ways, most likely won't be doing this. So this question acts as a challenge for those who don't care about true wisdom and only want the status of being thought of as wise. It highlights that they will be shown for who they are, as the consequences of their actions will likely show their selfish ambition. It highlights that they probably aren't as wise as they would like to think they are. But for those who honestly aspire to being wise through godly wisdom, this question acts as an invitation. It acts as an invitation to learn more about how to do this, as James sets out to show the nature of true wisdom. So this question is a great one. It's a great one for getting us to examine our hearts and turn to God for our wisdom rather than to ourselves and the world. So right now, whether this first question that James has asked us acts as a challenge or an invitation, let's open up our hearts to what God is saying to us today. So I'm going to say a quick prayer if that's all right. God, we stand here, we sit here humbly in front of you, and we don't want to be wise in the world's ways. We want to know what you're saying. We want to know what it means to be wisdom in you. And God, for us that are sitting here feeling challenged, maybe challenged from where they're finding our wisdom, um, or challenged at the state of our wisdom and our actions, would you just be holding us 
Would you be holding us in that tension and showing us what it means to be wise in you? And for those of us that are stood here ready with our arms open wide and our hearts open to you, would you be showing us what wisdom looks like for us today? And for all of us, would you be showing us the actions we need to take in order to show your godly wisdom to those around us? Amen. Okay, so I would really like to pick up on a word that James uses within this verse when he says, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So James isn't only saying that wisdom changes the way that people act, he's saying that, those, that they practice these acts with humility. So language is a living thing and it changes as societies develop and grow. And for those of you that don't know, the Bible actually wasn't in English. So when we read it, we read a translated versions. And that's actually why there are loads of different versions, the NIV, the NLT, the message, all of these things are ways that the Bible has been translated. So sometimes it can be really helpful for us to delve into the original language and the meaning of the words at the time that it was written in order for us to better understand what we're being called to do, especially if we notice different words are being used in different translations. And I think that this is one of those times, so if you'll bear with me, I'm going to do that. So the word I've done some research on here is the word humility. If you read different translations of the Bible, you might notice that your Bible uses the word meekness here instead of humility or gentleness here instead of humility. So I'm going to try and give us a whistle-stop tour of this without confusing you all beyond reason. So I'll go slow, but if you're completely lost, just stick your hand up and I'll, I'll try. I'll try. So, oh yeah, and here's some versions. We've got the NIV, the ESV. Oh, and I didn't say what version that bottom one was. I can't remember off the top of my head, sorry. Um, it'll, be, it'll be one, I promise. <laughs> um, so, the original word used for, we'll go off humility, the NIV version there. The original word used there um, is proutus. Proutus. Does anyone speak Greek in here? Oh, I saw a quick hand, but I think it was a joke, Renee. You little joker. Do you actually speak Greek? You, in school? You had to, how do I pronounce this then? Oh, she doesn't know. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, I did Google it and it said Proutus. If anyone is Greek or anyone is watching that knows Greek and I'm horribly butchering that, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. Um, so that is the Greek word. That is the English translation of the Greek word Proutus. Um, the commentaries I've read to try and understand this word have told me that it's a fairly complicated and multifaceted concept. So that means it's really difficult to explain with one word, which is why um, all of our translations have a different version of it. And um, there's not one word in the English language that is the direct um, equivalent of it. So the BDAG, Greek lexicon, I know. This is a book that tells us like the background of Greek words and what they mean and where in the Bible they are. I have a nerd as a brother-in-law and he doesn't mind me calling him that. He calls himself that. And he has every Greek lexicon that is available. Um, so I was like, hey, Ben, would you help me? Um, so he told me um, that in the BDAG Greek lexicon, Proutus, the definition of that is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Brilliant. 
Um, so humility fits this definition, uh, which is why it's used in some of the definitions, including the one that we've read today. Um, but humility isn't all that's being described here um, in this word. So in classical Greek, Priotus was used to describe people who were gracious and mild and to describe things that were gentle. So people who are gracious and mild and things that are gentle. So that is why some translations have chosen the word gentleness. So scholar Martin Collins explains that Priotus describes a condition of mind and heart, so it's an internal attitude, whereas gentleness refers to actions of a person, so an external behavior. Um, so while we can use gentleness, it's not quite there either. So we've got humility and gentleness that come and sum it up, and they do get the job done, um, but it doesn't sum up the fullness of Priotus um, fully. So, some scholars therefore believe meekness to be the closest English word to prautus. Um, so, meekness requires humility, it requires gentleness. Um, so, that's kind of why it's great. But kind of in our 21st century modern English, meekness has a bit of a stigma, a negative stigma associated with it. Um, kind of meekness and cowardliness is what people tend to think when we say meekness. Um, but that is far from the truth of what meekness means. And um, I am an a, a advocator for the word meekness just because people have told me prophetically that I have meekness. So I'm like, please, no one think I'm a coward. Um, so I'm going to just do a little education into meekness now. Um, so Matthew 11:29, Jesus is quoted saying of himself, so Jesus says, I am meek. He uses the word prowess, uh, oh gosh, English words, that's like the singular version of prowess. It's the same word, just in a different, meek, not meekness, prowess, not prowess, prowess. Sorry, guys, back on track. I am meek, prowess, and humble in heart. So Jesus is saying, I have this quality. He is meek. Um, so if anyone is thinking that meekness means weakness, I'm afraid you're wrong, unless you think that Jesus is weak or a coward. Um, if you think that, I really would encourage you to read your Bible because Jesus is one of the most powerful um, humans that has walked this earth. So meekness embodies humility, it embodies gentleness and wisdom, um, but going back to the Greek lexicon definition of prioritis, it's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. So, can I have the next slide, please? <laughs> yeah, thanks. I've got a picture of a horse. Um, I want you to talk around the people next to you what, why you think a horse might be associated with meekness. So the horse has the power to jump the fence, to knock off the rider, to run to its heart's extent, but it only does so when the owner tells it to, when it's trained. Um, so it's waiting for that owner's command. It's waiting for the time to use that power in the right way. So that's why it's often used in classical Greek writing, if you ever read some classic Greek. So meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is yielded strength. It's power under control. It's strength used in the right time, in the right place. Meekness recognizes the power that God has given us 
but it doesn't use it unwisely or for the wrong reasons. So again, I'm going to go back to the scholar Martin Collins, because I think he sums meekness up really well. So he says, as our Lord and Master, he's talking about Jesus, he is not harsh, he's not overbearing and oppressive, but he's gentle in his government. His laws are also reasonable and easy to obey. Neither he nor they enslave. He emphasizes the gentle aspect of meekness towards others. From this, we begin to see why meekness must be a virtue of those who will receive the kingdom and govern. Because God governs in meekness, his children must also. Because God governs in meekness, his children must also. So in this passage, James is telling us that in order to be truly wise, we have to act with priorities. We have to show meekness by stewarding the power of God well, by being meek and humble in heart, just as Jesus is. So I um, was explaining in 4 p.m. prayer before we started that I had a, a, another revelation when I was writing this talk of just how meek Jesus was. So um, in the Bible, we are given the account of Jesus on the cross. So um, Jesus went to the cross for our sins. He was punished by the people around him um, and hung up on that cross to die. Um, and the people around him, they, they jeered him and um, they made fun of him, saying, if you are really... Um, God, then save yourself. Show us now your power. Um, but Jesus knew that that wasn't what God was calling him to do. That wasn't the plan that was in place. And he, he had the power. He had the power to get off that cross, but he didn't because he had that power under control and he knew the plan. And he stayed there. He died. Um, we know that three days later he rose again to show that he is defeated all, even death itself, um, and therefore our sins can't stand in the way of us and God. Um, but that meekness in Jesus is such a powerful example. So verse 13 has got us looking at our hearts. It's shown us that genuine wisdom shows itself through the way that we live. Wisdom isn't just something that we possess in our heads, but something that we show through our actions and the way in which we live our lives. Our relationship with God is revealed by the life that we live. And the way that we live shows what kind of wisdom we have. James highlights this point even more in the rest of the verses in our, passion, passion, in our passage today. So I'm going to take us through those now. So verses 14 to 16 show us what the wrong wisdom, so earthly wisdom or wisdom from below, as it might say in our Bibles, looks like. So says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So James, in his very matter-of-fact manner, is saying that if we act with bitter envy, jealousy as we might call it, or selfishness in our hearts, we don't have godly wisdom. If we do this, we're claiming to be wise, but living in a way that shows that we're not. 
So the fact that I've spent so long looking at Praoutus might start to make sense to you now. So you might have made the connection yourselves, but if not, can you see how acting from envy, jealousy, and selfishness are in direct contrast to acting in meekness? So envy, jealousy, and selfishness come from having a sense of one's self-importance, from believing that we must look after our own interests over others, from looking at others and thinking that we deserve what they have. If we go back to the BDAG definition of priorities, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance, we can see that envy, jealousy, and selfishness go against what godly wisdom is. Worldly wisdom teaches us that we deserve certain things, for example, popularity, possessions, attention. This is how the world teaches us to think and act. But James challenges this type of thinking. He claims that it's not from above, it isn't godly. Rather, it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. When we act with envy and selfishness, we are acting like we're people of this world, rather than sons and daughters of God. We're ignoring the riches of heaven, and we're merely thinking about the things of the earth. So this isn't a concept only found in this passage. I've got some up here that are going to come up. So Luke 12, 33 to 34 tells followers of God to sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Philippians 2, 3 to 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And in Luke 10, 27, Jesus tells his followers to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So the Bible is littered with verses that remind us to focus on heavenly things, to not get so overwhelmed by what the world tells us is important that we forget who we are and that we are called to be citizens of heaven. The Bible calls us to set our minds on God and act from this place. For example, Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If our minds are set on earthly patterns, if we're acting from a place of envy and selfish ambition, then this will eventually, if not immediately, show through disorder and evil practices in the world. And that's simply because they don't come from above. They don't come from heaven. They don't come from God. Instead, James puts it bluntly that they're literally demonic and they come from hell. Can't mix those words. So James's intention is to point us to the wisdom from heaven, a wisdom far superior to any wisdom we find in ourselves naturally and certainly superior to the wisdom that comes from demons. So since true wisdom comes from outside ourselves and instead from God himself, we have to examine where our reliance is placed. True wisdom requires us to be consciously dependent on God. And this, again, requires us to embody priorities, as James has already told us in verse 13. True wisdom can only be acquired by people who are living in active reliance on God. 
if we want to be truly wise, we need to be looking to God as our guide, speaking to him, listening to him, and reading his word through our Bibles. Now, this takes time, it takes sacrifice, and we have to be willing to learn. We have to be willing to lay down our earthly wisdom and accept that God knows more than we ever could, that what we see on earth is not all that there is. So when planning this talk, um, I just felt God saying to me, just because you don't understand doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. Just because you don't understand doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. So just because we can't understand why something is the way it is or why we have to do things a certain way doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense. I don't know how to explain that more fully than that, so if that's confusing to you, just forget it, it's fine. Um, but I think that's, there's a bit of pride of that, that if something is to make sense, then I've got to understand it. But actually, with God, we're not always going to understand everything, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense to him. And it doesn't make sense in the wider plan um, that he has for us and for this world. So taking on this stance of humility requires us to accept that we might not always understand things on earth. And that's okay that we don't. But we've got to trust that we have a God who knows what he's doing. We have a God who knows what he's doing. And I think this active reliance on God also requires us to know where we get our sense of identity. So when we live in the world, I don't know if you notice, I do this as a job. The world is constantly telling us we have to prove who we are. And we have to prove who we are by our actions and by what other people think of us. Um, so the world says that we're only worthy if we can prove that we are. And quite often, the standards for proving that we are worthy are quite high and often unattainable. But the Bible says we're already worthy because we are children of God. We don't have to prove that. We have been given um, that title of worthy already. So when we know our identity comes from being children of God, we no longer feel the need to prove ourselves. And I think that's really important because where we get our sense of identity and where we feel we have to prove ourselves, it really impacts how we behave and act. Um, so, for example, um, thinking of power, if my sense of identity comes from what the world thinks of me and I want to be seen as wise and powerful, I am going to look to what the world says is wise and powerful and I'm going to try to show the people around me I am wise and powerful because, look, I know this and I can do this. Um, but when we know that our identity is in God, um, we no longer feel we have to prove to other people that wiseness or that power. So we can say, actually, I stand here fully accepted for who I am. And I'm going to go for what God says because he's who I care about. Um, but if our identity is in the world, then that's really hard to do. It's really hard to stand apart and set ourselves apart from the people of the world when we're trying to get their approval. If our, if our feelings of value um, is rooted in them. Um, so I just wanted to, to kind of bring that in. And actually today, there, there will be time. If, if, if you don't know or fully believe that you are valuable just because you exist, then we really want you to know that. And God really wants you to know that. There isn't some um, secret agenda going on here. That, that is simply it. God loves you as you are. And as we said, he's meek. His, what he asks us to do, it isn't hard. It isn't overbearing. And when it comes from that place of love, it makes sense to us. Um, so there'll definitely be time for us to pray for you if that is something that you would like prayer for. I've gone on a bit of a tangent there, sorry. Um, 
so James finishes off this passage by then listing attitudes and actions of true godly wisdom. He says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Now, this list works as a great test for us to see if we have the wisdom that comes from God. Are the things that we're saying and doing, are they, are they creating that? Are they pure? Are they peace-loving? Are they considerate? Is it submissive? Is it going to bring fruit in the world? Is it full of mercy to other people? Is it impartial? Am I being sincere? If not, it's probably not from God because we know our God is good and he is all of those things. Now, James is deliberate in listing the first characteristic of godly wisdom as first of all pure, and only then the other qualities. So this term pure speaks of holiness and is in deliberate, direct contrast to every evil practice he's just spoke about in worldly wisdom. So James is calling us to pursue holiness as a priority. Now, this is a sentiment that is echoed throughout the Bible so, for example, in Leviticus 11.45, God speaks to the Israelites and he says, Be holy because I am holy. Now, a pure life is a life that is obedient to godly wisdom. When an individual leads an unholy life, it's a really obvious indicator for other people to see that they don't have godly wisdom. James puts this high priority on holiness to lead people of God to do what is morally right. Pure living shows godly spiritual wisdom. And again, this emphasis is on our actions. If you want to know more about holiness, we did a series on it ages ago, and we will be able to find it on the podcast for you. Um, just ask one of us, we can find that for you. So after purity, James lists the, that wisdom from heaven is peace-loving, considerate, and submissive. So these three characteristics describe the wise person's disposition. If we have true godly wisdom, then we will show these characteristics. We will be peaceable, we will be gentle, and we will be considerate of others. Submissive and open to reason. What's interesting here is that these three words are also words that can describe what meekness looks like, that can describe what prioritus looks like. So those with godly wisdom will listen to others they have their power under control, they're teachable, they're humble, and they're gentle. Now, the second set of qualities reveal the wise person's actions. So they are full of mercy, and, they, and they're full of good fruit. So we can yet again loop back to verse 13 here. Our wisdom is shown through our good lives and our good deeds done in priorities. We're being full of mercy, and we're bringing good fruit to the world. When our actions are full of mercy for one another and they bear good fruit, it will show that God's wisdom is at work in our lives. True wisdom, again, isn't just head knowledge, it's how we live our lives. So James then finishes off with two words that describe the steady consistency of a person that has godly wisdom. They are impartial and sincere. Those with God's wisdom are not fake they do not claim to be anyone that they are not. They know their identity. They know who they are. They know what God says of them. They sincerely want to love others and do what is right in the eyes of God. Even when they face challenges, they don't waver from what they know to be right and what they know to be true. Again, the wisdom they hold isn't for show. 
It's a real knowledge in them. And then lastly, James summarizes godly wisdom in verse 18, telling us that peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. The fruit of the qualities that come from godly wisdom that James has just listed for us is righteousness sown in peace. Now it says earlier in James that our anger doesn't produce the righteous living that God asks of his people. It says that in James 1.20. So what James is pointing out here in this handy summary is that when we have godly wisdom that shows all of the qualities we've just listed, then we're producing righteous lives, and that's what God commands of us. But this righteous living only comes to those who are peacemakers. Again, we are reminded that worldly wisdom leads to disorder and vile practice, but listening to the wisdom of God leads to the righteous life that God asks of us. So, I hear you. Tilly, great Bible study. Thanks, guys. But what does it mean for us today? Well, I think the appropriate response to this passage we've read today is to do exactly what James has been getting us to do the whole way as we've read along, and that's to search our hearts. Which wisdom is leading our lives? Is it wisdom from above, godly wisdom? Or is it wisdom from below, earthly wisdom? If we're not sure, James has given us a pretty simple way to tell. Let's look at our lives, our character, and our attitude. Where do we see jealousy, envy, or selfish ambition in our lives? What situations or environments do we find that we are attempting to prove ourselves to others? Are there places where we're trying to make our own human points and fill our own human agendas rather than following the calling of God in our lives? When and where do we become more worried about how we look to others than being who God has called us to be? If we're serious about wanting to be wise, if we're serious about following God, then we have to face these areas and we have to listen to what God is saying. So let's do that together now.